If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. MI6 spymaster Thomas Kendrick helped thousands of Jews escape Nazi-controlled Austria before going on to devise the biggest Allied bugging operation of the Second World War. Historian and author Helen Fry has just written a book about Kendrick and she was joined in conversation by BBC History Revealed's production editor, John Borkham. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast again, Helen. Uh, It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Your new book is called Spymaster, The Man Who Saved MI6. And it's a biography of a chap named Thomas Kendrick, who, for reasons that will probably become quite clear during the course of this interview, is someone that a lot of people won't have heard of. Could you begin by telling me when you first came across him? I actually first came across him about 20 years ago, so that's a long time now. And I discovered his name when I was reading a book about one of his colleagues, Frank Foley, who also worked in espionage and worked for what we call MI6 today. And I was fascinated if a book could be written about Frank Foley. And I I got a sense that Kendrick had done as much, if not more. What could I possibly find out about the man that had lived... Kendrick, who'd lived in the shadows of the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, for nearly 40 years. It's an incredible story. And so I went on a detective trail to see what I could uncover. And the book is the result of that. Fantastic. And I want to go back to the very beginning of Kendrick's story, right at the very beginning. He is born in South Africa, isn't he, in 1881. Can you tell me a bit about his early life and upbringing? Yeah, so he is educated privately, not traditionally in the schools of Eton, but sort of the equivalent. He was born in Cape Town. His father was evidently very well off, originally from America, because he purchased the Hotel Metropole 
in Cape Town, which is the equivalent of London's Ritz Hotel. And in the 1890s, Kendrick's father bought that for $16,000. So that's like millions of pounds. So Kendrick is used to high-level society of moving in a particular world. And then just at the age of 19, he finds himself, well, he enlists in the British forces, uh, serving uh, allegiance to Queen Victoria then. And he is taken up for intelligence and he is cycling with the bicycle brigade behind enemy lines, hugely dangerous, and collecting intelligence for the British. And how does that go on to shape the rest of his military career? Of course, By 1914, there is another war. We have the First World War. What does he end up doing then? Well, the interim period between the Boer War and the First World War, he's actually in southwest Africa spying on the German forces and German occupying uh, forces there. And Germany's rearming. And okay, it might not be anything near the sophisticated guns and armament development of the Second World War, but Germany already was perceived as a threat. So Kendrick is involved in espionage, even as we realise as a threat and that the world World War One is imminent. So he has already had a taste for espionage and dangerous ops from the Boer War. And then during the remaining period in the years up to the First World War, he's actually working as a stockbroker. He's traveling around. He's working in the diamond mining industries. And this is something fascinating that I discovered that a lot of those figures that went on, like Kendrick, to found our secret service are in South Africa at this time, moving in and out of the diamond mining community, which, of course, has international connections. And Kendrick is already running spy networks. It's just terribly exciting. And then when we come to the Second World War, he serves for a couple of years in uniform again in South Africa. And eventually he's processing prisoners of war because the Germans surrender in South Africa much, much earlier than in Europe. And then he's transferred to France, where he's working with the intelligence corps. And again, he's running agents. He's a handler of agents, running them behind enemy lines, but also, towards the end of the war, processing thousands of German prisoners of war that have been captured and gaining intelligence from them through interrogation and through befriending them, which is, of course, a technique he'll go on to do in another war later. Absolutely. And just to hark back there, what I find really interesting in the book is, yes, there is this intelligence community that arises within South Africa and it's sort of transported, isn't it? Oh, it's fascinating because if you look at the characters he's he's working with, you've got Claude Dancy, who most people probably never heard of, but he becomes the deputy head of MI6, a bit of a controversial figure, always in the shadows. But also Vera Atkins. Vera Atkins famously sent those agents behind enemy lines, mainly known for the women, but she sent women and men behind enemy lines into France in the Second World War. Well, she was known to Kendrick in those early years um, of the just before the First World War, and her family, her father and her grandfather, were working as spies for Kendrick. And I think that's just fascinating. And Kendrick's actually one of the referees that 
recommends that it's okay to give Vera Atkins British nationality because she's she's Romanian originally. So he was an instrumental figure in her life, and of course most people will have heard of her. And as you say, he ends up in Europe during the First World War. How does he come to be in Vienna? What's his brief? Well, he doesn't actually, apart from the occasional visit, doesn't actually ever go back to live in South Africa because after the First World War, he spends a bit of time in Germany. The threat now are are the Bolsheviks. There's the communist threat. We've had the Russian Revolution and the head of SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, actually posts him to Vienna in 1925. And we know from the official history of MI6 that was written by Keith Jeffrey that Vienna in the 1920s and 30s becomes the most important station for SIS, Secret Intelligence Service, or as we know it, MI6. And so Kendrick is posted there as the British Passport Control Officer. So he's based in the British Passport Control Office, but he's actually not, in reality, doing very much visa and passport work. He's actually running spy networks across Europe. And it's just magical, you know, to to discover this whole secret world that he was part of. And he was running our most important networks, spying initially on the Russians, on the Bolshevik threat, but later, of course, spying on the rise of Hitler and the Nazi threat. Of course. And I I quite like there's this analogy that Vienna is like at the centre of a spider's web. It's at the crossroads between East and West, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely pivotal. You have, in the First World War, you have Paris as the centre of espionage, where the spies are moving in and out of. But by the 20s, it's Vienna. And what Kendrick does, and again, this is this sort of part of his double life, he regularly organises cocktail parties. He is penetrating high society. He has a number of aristocrats, Austrian, Czechoslovakian aristocrats, who are part of his circle, as well as intellectuals, musicians, journalists. He has an incredible network, all of whom might one day be able to help him because you never know when the next threat is coming. So you've got that very glamorous world that he's moving in. Indeed. And he encounters some very interesting figures during this period one of whom you suggest was Kim Philby, one of the famous Cambridge spies. Can you tell me a bit about his involvement with him or what you've been able to glean about that? Yeah, I think it's important that listeners can read very carefully the documentation I've uncovered because... Kim Philby was there in Vienna in 1933-34. It was a very dangerous time. You have fights on the streets of Vienna, quite literally, really violent physical fights between the far left and the far right. The Austrian Chancellor clamps down on the far left, on the communists. The communists go underground and they're living in the sewers of Vienna. We still need the intelligence on them, because the, the Soviets were actually infiltrating and using some... Some of the communists were sort of socialists. They weren't necessarily um, 
extreme left wing, but we we couldn't be sure what their threat was. So Kendrick was spying on the communists, those that have been driven underground. And Kim Philby is one of those figures who's helping the communists and he's smuggling them out of Austria. He's also smuggling secret messages into Czechoslovakia. And he's doing that and working with Hugh Gateskill, a figure later in the Labour government, of course, tipped to be a future Labour leader of the party and dies mysteriously in the early 1960s. But Hugh Gateskill's there. There are these fascinating characters and Kim Philby, of course, crosses paths with Litzy Friedman, really high-ranking communist, whom he then marries, and other figures that you know your listeners can read about. Edith Shoshitsky, who becomes Edith Tudor Hart, who, of course, is the woman that introduces Philby in 1934 to Otto Deutsch, and Deutsch is the one that recruits Philby for Russian intelligence, for Russian penetration and to become a Russian spy. But I think before Philby is recruited by the Russians, I think his role is a bit more complex. And I do suggest that he was loosely working for Kendrick. And so I won't elaborate anymore because I think people would love (laughs) to read that themselves. Absolutely fascinating. No, we won't won't spoil it. As you, you mentioned there earlier, of course, in the 1930s, Things take a slightly different turn, don't they? And how does the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party affect Vienna and and indeed Austria? So it affects it in a number of ways. In the early 30s, after 33, when Hitler comes to power, you get a flood of German Jewish refugees coming from Germany and a constant flood of refugees throughout the 1930s into Vienna. And you have that mix. Uh, They have eyewitness reports of the terrible things that are going on in Germany. But also we have the threat of Hitler's rearmament programme and we need intelligence. So we need intelligence not only on the Soviet agents and spies who are mixing in Vienna, we now need intelligence on the German threat. And so Kendrick's networks expand. He's sending spies into Italy because Italy becomes fascist with Mussolini. So he sends networks into there, but also into Nazi Germany. And he sends agents to the ports like Wilhelmshaven and Hamburg and Kiel, because we need to know what is Hitler constructing in terms of battleships, what's their specifications, their capability, but also the U-boat program. And of course, all this had been limited by the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War. Hitler was not to amass an army of greater than 100,000 men. But all that's changing. And Kendrick knows the threat is very real. And he does successfully send intelligence back to the head of the intelligence service to, to see in London. One of the most important aspects of Kendrick's biography is actually what he does in his cover role as a, a passport control officer, and particularly following the annexation of Austria in 1938. How does he help the Jewish population? Well, this is something which I think from the beginning we have to understand is a role he undertakes, a humanitarian mission that he didn't have to do because his role there is to run spy networks across Europe. We absolutely need the intelligence, but he struggles because when Hitler annexes Austria, when when those hefty forces are on the streets of Vienna and the country is occupied, 
Austria's Jews are immediately at risk. And just within a couple of weeks, you have 7,000 males over the age of 16 are arrested and just disappear, and they end up in concentration camps. You've got leading public Jewish figures who are at risk, intellectuals, even some of Kendrick's own agents who aren't necessarily Jewish are also at risk. Sigmund Freud, he's uh, subject to a raid, two raids actually, within a fortnight of the occupation of Austria. So these are really dangerous times. And Kendrick, of course, on the first morning, arrives to find literally hundreds of Jews queuing outside the passport office, wanting to get out of Austria. And this humanitarian mission, which he and his staff undertake, and he works up to 15 hours a day himself. Mm. And the Foreign Office reports tell us he saved up to 200 Jews a day. An incredible legacy. And as you will have read in the book, when the official channels don't succeed, when he's struggling to get Jews and communists now, they're also at risk. When he's struggling to get people out of Austria, he starts forging documents, forging marriage certificates, false visas, illegal visas into what was then Palestine. And that legacy has yet seriously to be recognised of, of what he's done. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a truly remarkable story. And he's helped along the way by people such as Hugh Grimes, isn't he? He is. Hugh Grimes is also, as we know now, working for MI6, and he has to kind of smuggle himself out eventually. But Hugh Grimes is allegedly baptising Jews, but of course with no water. These are false baptisms. And eventually the church that he's working with, which was linked to the embassy, they go on to save, he and his staff, another guy, Father Collard, go on to save 1,800 Jews. So 1,800 Jews get out over the course of six to eight, nine months, because they're being issued with false baptism certificates as allegedly being Christian, and of course, of which they're not. So what you see is any any way of getting people out, Jews being the most at threat, was used. And there's another story which came to light during the writing of the book, which I haven't heard about from any other source or, or anywhere else, that it was done by others, uh, other British diplomats. And Kendrick would send some Jews out in the diplomatic car. So he couldn't do it very often because, of course, this would could be blown. But an independent eyewitness said he had a sign in the back of the car which said, Corps Diplomatique, so diplomatic corps, and that car could not be stopped over the border. So he got some Jews out into Czechoslovakia, was fine at that point, mainly into Czechoslovakia, where he had huge networks and support. And I just think, I think, we, you know, we've just tipped the iceberg here, this legacy. And the other thing of importance, because there might be people listening for whom this is relevant, we now know from the writing of the book that some families were helped by Kendrick to come not only to United Kingdom or to what was then Palestine, but to Africa, to, to Kenya, to Rhodesia. There's a whole generation of people who were saved who don't realise that it was him that got them out. 
Yes, and it's an incredible legacy. But unfortunately, Kendrick's time in Austria comes to quite an abrupt end, doesn't it? In the summer of 1938. What happens? I said earlier, you know, these are very dangerous times, dangerous times for Jews, of course, but also for Kendrick. You know, he is still running his spy network, struggle as he does. Czechoslovakia is being threatened by the Nazi regime. They think it's going to be invaded possibly May 38. That doesn't happen. July 38. And ultimately, one of those agents that's working for Kendrick, he's a Czech agent, turns out to be a double agent. So Karl Tusek, we now know it was him who betrayed Kendrick. And if it hadn't been for him, one does wonder what would have happened. But the consequences were very real because Kendrick made one and only one face-to-face meeting with Karl Tusek. And that's that was what ultimately gave him away because he never met his double agents. He he tended to always use an intermediary. But mm. with directions from London, they said, yes, you can meet Karl Tusek. Tusek was getting vital intelligence from the German ports, but he was also turned and was working for the German Secret Service. And, and Kendrick is ultimately arrested in very dramatic circumstances as he's trying to flee over the border in the middle of August thirty-eight. And, yeah, he then taken back to Vienna and given four days of Soviet-style interrogation. So pretty horrendous for him. And, and why do you think he was released relatively soon after that ordeal? Is there, is there anything that's happening? Four days, yeah. Four days he's held in quite tricky circumstances. But, you know, the following month we've got the Munich Agreement, as we now know. That's on the cards, this meeting of Hitler with Neville Chamberlain, then our British Prime Minister. And I think the Germans just wanted to warn us. You, We have your senior spy. He was our most senior spy master at that time. And what would have happened if Munich hadn't been on the cards? I doubt if Kendrick would have got out alive. But thank heavens he did. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... And, of course, out comes the the pot of tea with the cucumber sandwiches. The generals love Kendrick. He plays piano. He entertains them. I mean, it's just magical, isn't it? And they have no idea that he's our top spy master. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. By the outbreak of the Second World War, Kendrick is in Britain, and there he is given another brief by the Secret Intelligence Service. And of course, this is a topic that forms the heart of your previous book, The Walls Have Ears. Yeah. But, for th- but for those who aren't familiar with that story, could you explain what it is that Kendrick ends up doing? Yes. Yeah, so in thirty-eight, until the outbreak of war, he's setting up a unit ready for the outbreak of war that would run across the war that had no blueprint before, it had not been done before. And this was to gain intelligence from German prisoners of war, well, and Italians, because they were our enemy, of course, too. But eventually, we would bug the conversations of over 10,000 German prisoners of war. We would give them a phony interrogation in which they would go back to their room or their cell, and they would say to their mates, you know, the British are stupid, they're incompetent, they, they don't know how to conduct an interrogation. They didn't ask me this, they didn't ask me that. But, of course, the walls had ears, quite literally. So you have microphones embedded in light fittings and the fireplaces. And then later, when we have Hitler's top commanders in plant pots on the billiards table (laughs) and behind mirrors and stuff like that. But he goes on to, to set up and run this incredible intelligence gathering organization that's industrial in scale and is working very closely with the code breakers at Bletchley Park. It starts in the Tower of London, doesn't it? And then it it expands slightly further afield. Yeah, quite often you find the story jumps in a little bit later. But when I was working on both books and sort of simultaneously at one point, I was was astounded to find that Kendrick opens his very tiny unit to start with. Of course, that's soon scaled up. He opens it in the Tower of London. (laughs) It's very Um, archaic. (laughs) I mean, what would those German prisoners have thought when they first arrived at the Tower of London? And we had 60 German prisoners of war in the Tower of London by the end of September 1939. We are really beginning this operation very early. And I hope one day there'll be something in the Tower of London to this history because at the moment there isn't anything there and that would be rather nice and we know exactly which parts of the Tower of London he worked from he had a kind of sealed off secret section used for him some of the towers there at the back of the Tower of London but he then goes on to run three extra sites Trent Park at Cockfosters there at the end of the Piccadilly line and then in Buckinghamshire Latimer House and Wilton Park. And this is when it really becomes, as I said, an industrial scale intelligence gathering. Because Kendrick, like the intelligence chiefs, believed whoever wins the intelligence game will win the war. We need the intelligence. Indeed. And he he sort of builds upon some techniques that perhaps he honed slightly earlier in his career. In the book, you talk about how he's whining and dining German generals and really sort of flattering them and in, in order to coax out information. What, what does he do? Oh, he's so good at understanding human psychology and in particular, the German generals. So he knows that these are 
top commanders. They've got information. They're close to Hitler. You can't interrogate them. They're not really going to give you anything. They believe they can still win the war. So he goes on this massive, he and his personnel go on this massive charm offensive. You don't put them in Nissen huts with barbed wire. You give them a stately home. And they think the king has given them the stately home. (laughs) And then they go on these wonderful lunch trips to Simpsons on the Strand. And then eventually when Churchill finds out about Simpsons on the Strand, he's furious. (laughs) And Kendrick, yeah, he has to move the lunches to the Ritz Hotel. And this is so outrageous to us today, I guess. But we've got to get the intelligence. And those generals were so relaxed. I mean, they were even invited to Kendrick's home in Oxshot in Surrey. I mean, he lived near the base during the wartime, but occasionally his wife would get a call to say, you know, I'm I'm coming over this afternoon. Could you get some tea ready? And he'd turn up with these German generals. She never asked any questions. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, out comes the, the pot of tea with the cucumber sandwiches. The generals love Kendrick. He plays piano. He entertains them. I mean, it's just magical, isn't it? And they have no idea that he's our top spy master. And that they even concoct a figure, don't they? Lord Aberfeldy. (laughs) Yeah, this is probably one of the most genius parts of Kendrick's operation, the creation of a fake aristocrat to charm those generals, to befriend them, to be their welfare officer. And it works a treat. Of course, Aberfeldy, the sense of humour, they've named him after a whiskey distillery, (laughs) your fake aristocrat. And Lord Aberfeldy, yeah, completely charms those generals. And there's some fantastic stories about him in The Walls Have Ears. And of course, he does appear in my Spymaster book too. Absolutely. But of course, when when their guard drops, they do reveal some very important things. I mean, for instance, there is an important revelation about the V-Weapons programme, isn't there, at some point? Yes, there is. And what I've done is for people who haven't read The Walls Have Ears, which is really a, a really wonderful history of this unit, I've done a deeper dive in Spymaster and uncovered more stuff about the V-weapons. So across those two books, there's some very important stuff to recognise now, uh, that the German generals actually, after the fall of Stalingrad in early '43, become quite depressed that they're losing the war. And it's General von Thoma, who'd been captured in North Africa, who says, no, we, ha- we aren't going to lose the war. We've got the V-weapons, the secret weapons. And that's when they start to talk about Pinimunda, where this is being developed. And that site, Pinimunda, is ultimately bombed by us in the middle of August '43, And that rescues the day because the first V-1 doesn't land on London until a week after D-Day. Now, what if we hadn't discovered that in time? And I've talked on this programme about that before, but what I discovered for Spymaster is that a very important prisoner of war actually goes through Latimer House in Buckinghamshire in July '43, and he says Hitler has a plan to invade Britain in September '43 with the help of these V-weapons. He's telling his, his cellmate, well, Hitler may well have that plan. He may may or may not have succeeded, but it gives us an idea of the sheer significance of knocking out those V-weapons in the middle of 43. It buys us time. 
And I'll say this again because I think I probably said it on your last programme and it is relevant. I was told that as late as 1945, February 45, without the intelligence coming out of Kendrick sites, the bugging operation, and Bletchley Park, we still could have lost the war. And I still reflect on that and find that extraordinary. But Germany could have won the tech war, could have got the atomic bomb program going. We were also spying on that. So Kendrick sites were absolutely crucial. And without which I do ask that question, could we have ultimately won the war without this stuff? Indeed. And it's it's a very it's a very interesting sort of thought to ponder, isn't it? I mean, just, just to go back a, a bit, he, he's less successful perhaps with Rudolf Hess, who ends up in Britain on a, on a failed diplomatic mission in 1941. Yeah, he's bailed out over Scotland, hasn't he, on this peace mission on the 10th of May, 41. Well, he finds himself, Hess finds himself at the behest of MI6 at a secret site at Merchant Place near Aldershot. And Kendrick leaves Trent Park, where he's based at that point, for about four months. And he is one of the three MI6 minders to look, so-called look after Hess and get intelligence from him. But I do query, how much intelligence did we get from Hess? Because traditionally, it's always believed that Hess just came up with a lot of exaggerated nonsense. And yes, he was very unstable, bordering on madness, believed we were poisoning him, believed Kendrick was poisoning him at mealtimes. <laughs> so he'd often swap his dinner plate with Kendrick, who was known as Colonel Wallace. That was his cover name. But right. again, you can read, as you know, about some of the intelligence or the stuff that Hess did give us, which we didn't believe. But now if you look at the bug conversations alongside that, for example, his, just give you an easy example, Hess was bragging that they were making one U-boat a week. And, of course, British intelligence thought it was not possible. If, if that was really so, Germany could have won the Battle of the Atlantic. And we now know from the bug conversations and from other evidence that that actually, in hindsight, was true. Germany was, because they'd actually brought their manufacturing inland away from the ports, and we hadn't believed Hess. So he's a mixed case, really, but he remains absolutely fascinating. And there are all sorts of conspiracies we know are surrounding Hess, but whatever did or didn't happen, in reality, I guess Kendrick took that with him to the grave, didn't he? That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's so much we're not going to know. I mean, after after the Second War is over, he's by now he's in his sixties, isn't he? Yes. What happens then? How how does he end his career? Well, he's posted back to MI6. It says on his official war record, uh, he's been just been seconded to the War Office during, in intelligence, of course, high-ranking intelligence during the Second World War. So between 1945 and 1948, he's back with MI6. We don't know what he did. And the only clue we have is a letter from the Director of Military Intelligence to the head of MI6, to Stuart Menges, head of MI6, which says, you know, thank you for loaning us your man Kendrick. He's far too important to send to post-war Germany. We need to find, you know, we need to be, be doing something else with him. So you think, 
What could be more important? Because those secret listeners that bugged the conversation, some of them were doing the same kind of work at a new site in Germany at Bad Nendorf. But Kendrick didn't command them. And they were listening into the scientists and the technologists and getting vital stuff ahead of the Cold War that we were sort of entering. But what did Kendrick do? I don't know, until his retirement in '48. That perhaps might always may remain a mystery. Was he again running agents and double agents? Who knows? And it's a, it's a strangely cyclical journey, isn't it? Because back in the 1920s, the, the main threat is communism, then it's fascism, then it's, it's communism again with the Cold War. And that's part of his legacy, which I think could easily have been missed, that at the very end of the Second World War, before he sent back uh, formally to MI6, he spends another six months listening into, at these sites, Trent Park, Latimer House and Wilton Park, getting intelligence on all kinds of technology ahead of the Cold War. And, for example, there is a figure who appears at Trent Park, General Dornberger, who'd been in charge of the whole, from an administrative and scientific perspective, the whole of Hitler's V programme. And he also knew stuff about the atomic programme. And I was told that Dornberger's interrogation was the most important interrogation ahead of the Cold War. So I do a bit of a dive into that in Spymaster. So the significance is that, yes, we are winning the intelligence war against Nazi Germany, but Kendrick's legacy goes beyond that. He's also preparing us in terms of intelligence for the Cold War, for the new threat. And it's a threat, as you say, he's familiar with. It's it's the Russians again. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Kendrick dies in 1972, age 91. And and what I find really interesting is that when you first started researching his life and career, his family could tell you very little, couldn't they? So uh, how how did you go about piecing this together in the first place? There There are some records at the National Archives, for instance, but it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. Oh, it's taken all of this time, a good 20 years, to piece this together. And still we don't have, we have a very comprehensive picture, but I think we've probably just scraped the surface, particularly of his networks in the 1930s. His family, you're quite right, eventually knew he worked for MI6. For me, I'm fascinated by his wife, Nora, what did she know? Because he leads this double life. He's in military uniform. Oh, he's just working for the war office. But when and how did she know his real role? And that's an open question there. Uh, we don't know. The family don't know. But when I started out, they gave me an A5 sheet of paper. So not even A4. <laughs> an A5 scrap piece of paper with just some bullet points about his life. And it's like a needle in a haystack, but we have got there. There are files in the National Archives that we can now draw on. But I love that scene. They have a few memories, and I love that scene at the funeral. And you probably remember this in the book, in the Mm. church there. And when the grandson turns around, there's a row of men in trench coats and trilby hats. I mean, it's just like something out of a John le Carre novel, isn't it? I was about to say, yes. Straight out of one of those novels. And he turns to his mother and says, uh, who are those men? And she says, oh, they're from the British Secret Service. 
And we don't know who they were. We don't have any names. The family never knew who they were. All they knew was that the British Secret Service came to his funeral to honour the man, which we now realise was among the top echelons of SIS MI6. And finally, I want to talk a bit about Kendrick's legacy today. I mean, you've, you've mentioned this throughout the interview. He's been described by some as being uh, Vienna's Oscar Schindler. What are you currently trying to do to get his efforts more widely recognised? I have now submitted an application formally to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem because to me it seems... um, he went beyond the call of duty. He was not just doing his job. When he rescued thousands, ultimately, of Jews, there are thousands of Jews he saved who went on to have their own families, children, grandchildren, that wouldn't be here today, that humanitarian legacy. So I'm really hoping that Yad Vashem will ultimately decide that he deserves the status of righteous Gentile and that he will be remembered alongside his colleague Frank Foley and others like Nicholas Winton at Yad Vashem. Well, Helen, thank you very much for talking to me. And I just want to say again for listeners that Helen's new book is called Spymaster, The Man Who Saved MI6. And that's out now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.